and welcome to this FT Advisor in Focus CPD podcast about the future of sustainable fixed income. The ESG fixed income market has seen impressive growth since its establishment more than a decade ago. But more recently, performance has been lacking. Despite this, many believe the market will see a resurgence. And some even say fixed income is the most mature and developed segment of the sustainable finance universe and is offering large potential for diversification. We speak to Chris Atkinson, Fixed Income Portfolio Manager at Fidelity International, Stuart Chilvers, Fixed Income Fund Manager at Rathbones, and Minesh Patel, a Chartered Financial Planner and Director of EA Financial Solutions, about how they navigate the current market and where the future opportunities lie. As a reminder, this podcast qualifies for CPD. After listening to this podcast, you'll be able to communicate popular ESG fixed income strategies, explain how bond managers are responding to market turbulence, and highlight how ESG bonds can act as a diversification tool. Hi all, thanks for being here today. Um, Now, before we talk about recent bond performance, um, I'd like to just talk a little bit about what types of ESG bonds there are for people to invest in. Um, What strategies are popular at the moment? What do you like investing in, Um, Chris? Well, okay, so yeah, there are obviously uh, quite a few um, ESG labelled securities. So we we have essentially what is called the, the use of proceeds bonds. Uh, so these are bonds where they have a defined um, use of the capital, right? So that typically is a um, uh, the, the most common one is uh, a green labelled security. So green use of proceeds bonds. Uh, but you can also have uh, sustainability bonds, blue bonds, uh, social bonds, where there is a sort of tightly controlled process around the allocation of those proceeds and then the monitoring and the reporting of those proceeds going forward. So that is the sort of most common um, uh, type of ESG fixed income security that's in the market today. Uh, recently, we've had this sort of innovation, which is called sustainability-linked bonds or sustainability-linked notes. These are securities where the instruments have um, their coupon is tied to the achievement of certain um, goals and objectives, mm-hmm. uh, corporate objectives of the company. So, for example, it might be decarbonisation. The company might commit to reduce its um, Uh, carbon emissions by a certain amount if it fails to meet that objective then the coupon steps up there is effectively a financial penalty so these became a little bit more popular in the last couple of years um, but received a little bit of pushback in terms of the quality around that that sort of process and so the issuance this year has sort of fallen away as a percentage of the overall um, ESG bond Mm -hmm. market um, so in terms of the, the, the sort of approach and the strategies that, that, that we follow, I mean, we do look at all of these labelled securities. We think they, you know, there's varying degrees of quality, um, um, but we're also very focused on overall corporate um, ESG and sustainability um, transition. And therefore, we're not confined purely to ESG labelled securities. We do our own homework, if you like, uh, and try to identify companies that are having uh, a positive impact, but might not necessarily be issuing uh, a so-called ESG uh, labelled uh, labeled bond. So that that is sort of is a, a very quick canter through through the market. I think the issuance trends have continued to to grow over the last few years, um, but I think we shouldn't you know ex- we shouldn't ex- expect um, ESG labelled bonds 
to be immune from broader market trends. So, for example, mm-hmm. when you know the market is shut to um, general uh, fixed income securities, you shouldn't expect ESG to def- sort of def- you know, uh, uh, defy that um, overall market uh, mm-hmm. trajectory. So, we've seen uh, general issuance trends move up and down over over the last couple of years in line with uh, the broader market. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, Stuart, what um, what do you like to invest in when it comes to sustainable fixed income? Yeah, so it's we're similar similar to Chris in in the sense that we will look at ESG labelled issuance, um, we, and we will consider so the use of proceeds, the uh, ring fence bonds, separately um, potentially from their issuer. So if the issuer does not pass our screening process, so the Rathbone Africa Bond Fund has a negative and positive screening process, use of proceeds can be considered differently if we have a a positive view on on the on the sort of financing framework as part of that. On the other hand, sustainability linked, we won't look look at those any differently from the overall issuer because your proceeds aren't ring fenced in any way. In fact, for us, when we look at those issuers who are using that type of debt, often they're from issuers who are actually would fall foul of our negative screening process. So, so we would not would not invest in those. Mm-hmm. But as as Chris mentioned, we will look at the the whole the whole corporate bond universe, and we will use so Green Bank, who are ethical, sustainable, and impact investment unit we use the research team within there so they are completely separate from our investment team so we will look for an idea we'll then send it to that team they will decide whether it passes the ethical screening process they have a hard veto so we quite like that from a governance approach it completely separates out any conflict of interest from our behalf because you have an independent body it will be within Rathbone's independence and investment team who just say whether it passes that criteria or not and then monitor on an ongoing basis. Mm. And what's your view on government bonds? Can they ever be ethical? I know some some fund managers think they are, others say it's not possible. Yeah, so I think it's quite a personal, personal question um, in terms of I don't think I can be the arbiter for everyone as to whether government debt is is ethical or not. Um, clearly, some of their spending is has very positive positive um, consequences and some of it more, more negative. Um, for us, as part of our screening criteria, it doesn't does not pass our screening criteria because of defence spending, for instance. Uh, it's the reason why Bryn Jones, my boss, the, the lead fund manager of the Ethical Bond Fund, has been lobbying for green gilts for much of the past decade um, until they're issued in 2021 so we could partake in, in government bond debt. Um, so, yeah, for us, it doesn't pass our screening criteria because of the negative negative screening we have in place, mm-hmm. is that the same for uh, fidelity? Uh, not not quite. We have a, we have a, we have a similar approach, and I would, I would agree it's a very personal uh, decision around whether or not um, uh, you would qualify a, a government bond as ethical. Um, given that you could be funding anything from you know, defence all the way through to healthcare to to, to social care. Um, however, for me personally. Um, you know, I view uh, government and government issuances effectively uh, where government is is forced to step into where the market wouldn't otherwise provide that particular service. Right, so it is there to provide you know strong institutions. It's there to provide healthcare. It's there to provide uh, the sorts of services that you you just wouldn't get provided for by by the market. So if you if you take a government issuance through the sort of lens of addressing market failures, then essentially it should be ethical now of course as with any corporate you can have good management and bad management and there are certainly some governments um uh who you know perhaps are 
not living up to uh, the billing of uh, of addressing um, uh, market failures and, and and providing an environment for their uh, population that is more positive and more um, uh, more sustainable. Uh, for example, governments who I don't know renege on their um, uh, uh, their decarbonisation commitments, that sort of thing, for example. Right. So, for us, the way that we approach that is to say, well, each of these governments needs an assessment. Right. It needs an ESG assessment that says, you know, are you moving in the right direction? Are there any major flags um, that um, uh, uh, that, that are tripped that that you, you, that you would not consider to be appropriate for uh, a sustainable or an ESG fund, um, but inherently they should be um, ethical uh, broadly defined mm-hmm. okay now let's bring in the advisor perspective Inesh um, how do you use sustainable bonds and, um, and what um, how, how do, you re- do you respond to um, how the managers view the space well it, in terms of where we use ESG bonds they're a portfolio diversifier you know unusually in the since the financial crisis bonds became a growth asset and traditionally that's not the space they occupy they're an income producer and a bond diversifier um, in terms of what the managers have said i quite like the the idea of sustainability linked bonds and that could be a route to expansion of um, esg integration because although they're not strictly um, purpose-led i.e a green bond or a social bond they could reward better behaviour. So in one of your, um, in the preparation, you talked about um, can oil companies, for example, um, to reward better behaviour as opposed to where they are now, and that could actually improve the universe. Um, And for penalties for debt issuance, if they don't meet targets and goals. Um, It's a very small part of the market, as, as Chris has said so far, but I see great applications in that particular particular. I mean, the biggest area is obviously green bonds at the moment. But in terms of what Chris said, I think, and and and, and what Stuart said, social bonds I think have a great application because there are deficiencies um, in government uh, government allocation resources. There's great poverty in the UK and the US, massive. So where does you know, there is gaps gaps in funding that require a specific purpose, lack of education in, in cities, etc. So, you know, you've got to take specific targets and objectives to very real needs in society. And I think social bonds is a great place. For example, in the US, uh, which is more fe- which is federal rather than central government, mm-hmm. you've got municipal bonds. You know, maybe that's a routine for the expansion of, you know, real specific applications which have very real outcomes mm-hmm. and i suppose in that respect it almost allows you to invest more directly doesn't it as a bond investor than it would do as an equity perhaps now nevertheless it's been a tough time the last couple of well last 80 months or so um for bonds and on their performance um how have you responded to that um chris um so I think this is you know, this is obviously uh, uh, an unusual time uh, in in fixed income markets, given that we've just come off the back of a uh, you know more than a decade of you know what is you know a monetary policy experiment, uh, and as we've come out of COVID and the exceptional 
uh, fiscal and monetary response that, that came about from that, um, combined with the uh, narrowing of supply chains, I, I suppose we we all had a collective failure of imagination in, in, in how that would feed through to, to inflation. Um, and I, I include myself in that and central bankers, economists, you know, I think it's just, you know, I think we should have possibly done a better job anticipating the impact that that would have. So how, how do we address that now as, as fixed income investors? Well, I think we've, we've had um, the reset. We've had the reset in, um, in rates. Uh, clearly, we're having a debate in the market at the moment around, you know, how much longer are rates going to remain higher? Um, is there any further uh, hikes to come through? But I think we can probably all agree that we're more or less um, close to the, the inflection point. Maybe, you know, we'll be a few months out here or there, um, but, but we're not far away. And so the approach that we've been taking, certainly over the course of, of this year, is to take very measured uh, positions, try and be nimble, try and be uh, not get wedded to any particular position, recognize the fact that uh, data prints are proving volatile. Um, they're being, um, uh, you know, even when you think you've got the, the data print right, the market reaction is obviously, is often um, uh, not as you would necessarily expect it to be, and clearly geopolitical risk, as we've seen over the last few days, has been uh, has been increasing. So, I think this is not an environment to be to be sticking your neck out and taking you know large oversized positions, particularly in uh, in duration. And the way that we approach it from a credit perspective is that um, you know we we've long had a philosophy of sort of bottom up fundamental credit homework uh, that you need to do to ensure that your downside is is covered. Um, we take a, a relatively cautious approach to our, our credit selection and we're pretty diversified. The reason for that is because, obviously, as we move forward in these uh, this you know, pretty much unprecedented hiking cycle that we've experienced starts to feed through, then we expect to slow down. We expect the implications to become evident in the market, increase in dispersion, increase in default rates. Um, uh, and we want to make sure that you know the credits that we're holding aren't going to be those that that we're forced to take impairments on. So mm -hmm. I think that for us is the sort of um, you know sort of a, a gradual approach to accumulating alpha rather than try and swing the bat and and, and potentially miss. Mm -hmm. And is Fidelity's thinking in the sustainable fixed income space? Broadly similar to to the normal conventional fixed income space in that respect. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it is. It's um, it's the same approach. Right? So, you know, the way that we um, we approach uh, the assignment of uh, VSG ratings, our proprietary ratings, it's a combination of our uh, internal uh, sustainability team uh, and also the the credit and the equity analysts. And the reason that we incorporate the credit and the equity analysts is because you know we have you know, we have a large SI team, sustainable investment team, um, but they're never going to be as large as our credit and equity team uh, and they are the ones that know and understand the credits and the sectors uh, better than anybody else so we feel that their expertise is absolutely invaluable in feeding into those ESG ratings so when we we take the same approach to portfolio construction but of course we then um, apply an extra layer of rigor and exclusions negative mm -hmm. and positive around the um, uh, around the the, the the securities and the sectors that, that would be included in those portfolios but still absolutely critical for for any fixed income portfolio is diversification. Right? Mm -hmm. we, we have to recognize that we are an asymmetric asset class and that if we are overexposed to any particular sector or, or, or region or, um, or country, the potential there is for, for that we will get, you know, um, we will experience a lot of pain. So, mm -hmm. 
you know, for example, and, and maybe we will come back to this later. You know, we had last year, yeah, obviously the the the, the rate shock, uh, and that fed through to a handful of sectors. You know, real estate most notably. And real estate was a big sector in the green bond market. So were banks. That was obviously also impacted quite negatively. And then we had the commodity price volatility in Europe, uh, and that impacted the utilities. So the three biggest corporate sectors within the green bond universe um, were all negatively impacted all in the space of one year. So that's why it's absolutely critical um, that you have these diverse, this diversified approach, mm-hmm. you know, and you recognise that the, the, the transition, whatever that lo- looks like, has to be a pan um, across the the whole um, economy, not just certain segments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do want to um, come back to diversification um, in a minute, but uh, for now, uh, Stuart, can you just tell us how you've responded to um, the market volatility? Yeah, sure. So I think coming into 2022, um, we did not have the foresight like anyone else that inflation was going to be much, much stickier and more and higher than anyone else expected. Um, But we did come in with a shorter duration than most. Um, Certainly, if you can look at compared to like a sterling IG corporate index, which given the sector we sit in seems reasonable, we came in with significantly lower duration. And the reason for that was we just felt we weren't being particularly paid for the duration risk at that point. We've been quite slow to add that back, thinking all the way back to sort of February Monetary Policy Committee, UK 10-year guilt, I think it touched near 3%, and we were struggling to understand why at that point we felt there was still a d- decent way to go in terms of rate rides. We didn't feel we were at the end of that journey. Recently, we've been starting to build that duration up, mainly through long-dated green gilts, actually, um, so particularly the 30-year green gilt. So we're now deploying somewhat of a barbell, so where you have inverted curves as well, using short-end corporate paper where you're still getting quite attractive yields uh, alongside a 30-year green gilt position and some in a 10-year green gilt position to, to add some of that duration to the portfolio. We've gone through a number of time reviews, in particular trouble being minus names and any names which you think could suffer in a in a more challenging economic outlook and look to reju- exit those from the portfolio and recently um sort of back end of last month we were looking at particularly long dated corporate paper where we felt spreads were starting to get back towards 2021 levels in terms of the tights and we just felt that didn't reflect what we think will pan out in terms of the economic outlook mm-hmm. and where do you see kind of the um future opportunities in in sustainable fixed income I think they're going to be incredibly broad. Um, I think when you look at any of the number of estimates about the amount of investment needed for the world to reach its net zero targets, they are gigantic and clearly a significant portion of that will need to be funded from debt markets and that will give the opportunity for more sustainable issuance um, and really importantly, really continue the start of the broadening out we've seen in terms of sectoral issuance. Um, I think... We, we may see more innovation in that space. Things like blue bonds um, are still... You know, what What is a blue nice. bond? So it's where it's, it's again, a use of proceeds bond, but it's in terms of looking after marine ecosystems, mm. um, so looking after the oceans. But I wouldn't expect that to become as significant as green bonds, for instance. I'm, I'm just not sure it's, it's realistic in terms of the, the scale. Um, you have some of these sort of debt for nature swaps, which we've seen recently, um, I think, Depending how they pan out, again, you could see a bit of growth in that area, but I don't, still don't expect it to be one of these big, large pillars like green, social, sustainability. Um, sustainability linked, um, I think we'll see. Um, I think we'll see how that evolves. Within, there was that huge pickup in issuance. You said it's now come back slightly. Um, 
I think it'll be interesting to see how that evolves in terms of the, how challenging the targets are associated with it, how the level of step up in coupons, it'll be interesting to see how that asset class evolves. Mm-hmm. What about you, um, Chris? Where do you see the future opportunities? Well, like Stuart, I think the you know the the, the funding needs are so significant um, that uh, you know, there has to be opportunity within that. So we know you know we obviously we've seen the estimates around what we need to raise for for climate change um, to address climate change. You know, biodiversity, I think we're somewhere in the region of you know seven hundred billion to a trillion short a year uh, of what we need to be raising. So that should open up a lot of opportunities now. Um, I think for us, the the real opportunity is within transition, and this is the you know the sort of the, the very tricky area of the market to crack, right? Because um, we all know in terms of sustainable, let's, let's let's stay within climate change because that's the easiest one. I think the one we're all most familiar with. Right? We're, we're not in the end state. We're not in the position that we need to do. We're not net zero. We haven't achieved one and a half degrees, so effectively that means that pretty much every corporate, every uh, country is is in a state of transition. Uh, and yet, there are some sectors and some countries which you know struggle to raise capital in the in the labelled bond market um, because you know. And come back to the point that you were making about the, you know, the sustainability linked bonds, um, yeah, the the aspiration around the targets. Um, but I think we need to find a way to bridge that gap because there are sectors that are, you know, uh, absolutely critical for decarbonisation. So think about, you know, um, the sort of um, uh, metals and, and mineral space where those um, uh, materials are required within um, uh, new technologies, and yet the sort of production increment that we need is somewhere between. I was listening to it. Uh, a, a research piece this morning uh, somewhere between eight times for the sort of best supply commodities up to 400 times increment in terms of production. So we've got to find a way of addressing this need. So that, I think, for me, is where the biggest opportunity lies. Because if we can address that funding need, then we can speed up the transition. But we have to find a way of doing that, which is you know, consistent with the challenges that we face as investors with our clients and saying that you know, you know we, we're not greenwashing. Right, we are we are investing in the transition, and, and likewise with regulation, which is obviously trying to ensure that we're not greenwashing and that what we're selling is is a um, is what it says it is. But we have to find a way of addressing that transition, and if we don't address that transition, then then we, we may as well give up on our mm-hmm. on our climate aspirations. Mm-hmm. And what does it all mean for the advisor, Minesh? What how have you responded to? Um the drop in in bond prices, sustainable bond, bond prices, and market volatility, and where do you go from here? Well, from um, an advice perspective, you are well. My job has become defending portfolios in the longer term because we all talk about the longer term, but the client's perspective on what they view as longer term, and the professionals' view on what longer term are at odds. That's my that's my a reading of the last two years, 18 months, or sorry, 18 months. Um, and also the period of recovery for assets is not aligned. So on average, statistically, I think it's 16 months for a recovery in assets when they fall from, when, they, when there's a market decline. Um, but really, an investor views it as like a few months, two, three months. So I started to sort of challenge my own thinking to say, well, 
you know, there has been academic uh, theory which suggests, well, why don't we just go 100% equities and just park the rest in cash? I mean, so there's, a, there's, there's a challenge now. I'm not saying I'll pursue that challenge. There's a challenge to say, well, why bonds? Why bonds? Because the bond diversifier last two years has not worked. Yeah, it's it's not worked. And that's a challenging conversation for an advisor to have because you're you're everything you've been taught professionally is being challenged mm-hmm. now then but the rational part of me then says well you've got to look at very unusual challenging conditions an elevated inflation environment which nobody saw coming i think we'd all agree central banks saw that as transitory and every, everyone viewed it as transitory um and we had a, the russia ukraine war which uh, created even worse supply side issues so the whole legitimacy of the bonds and the role within portfolios and that includes esg is now under challenge a bit more particularly from the end user yeah the end user is challenging what the role of bond is bonds are i would still argue and this is my a narrative to clients that you're paying for the coupon steady income which when reinvested at the long-term growth you're it's it's an income play as much as a rather than a capital growth play um but yes it is very challenging when 60 40 50 50 40 60 whatever the 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 the, the norms have been have underperformed against a 100 percent equity portfolio obviously Different degrees of X, small caps have been very, very challenged, uh, largely due to yields increasing on bonds, again, because that's the, the, their pricing. So I believe from managers, I think there needs to be a reinforcement of why buy bonds in the first place. I'm mean, sort of going back to basics. I mean, that sounds rather fundamental, but the client is fundamental. He, the client is very short term in their thinking as opposed to long term um, but our perspective and our narrative has to widen that view, yeah? Um, I do think there's an opportunity now in bonds because pricing has come off such a lot, yeah? Um, there is an opportunity certainly for ESG bonds, which have a long, longer lens, you know, longer, long, um, and the UK really is at the heart of quite strong issuance on gilts or green gilts. Um, so I think going back to the fundamental argument, what do bonds need really do within the portfolio? That that needs to, and uh, where can ESG bonds enhance that relationship? Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's put the let's put that question to the two managers uh, to finish off. Uh, sorry, so where where can uh, ESG bonds enhance the relationship between how did um, it between our end investors and. Uh, where do they act as a? How do they act? How do they meant to act as a diversifier see, in a portfolio? Okay, okay. So, I mean, I think look, we've had exactly uh, the same comments from some of the the advisors that we speak to. This is supposed to be the defensive part of the portfolio, and it's down, you know, fifteen, eighteen, twenty percent over the last twelve months. How you know what gives? Which is a perfectly fair comment, um, and and this is why I came back to earlier on about the the sort of um, unusual period that we're that, that we're moving through at the moment. And the analogy that I use is, is, is back in, in, in the sort of 90s, we had a sort of big uh, Fed move, middle of, uh, middle of the 90s, which then sort of rippled through the markets over a period of a number of years. And there were various uh, blow-ups, which you know, I'm sure some of your um, listeners can, can recall. You know, we had you know, with LTCM, we had the Asia crisis, we had uh, Latin American crisis, we had Russian crisis. That's how I see this, this playing through now. 
right? So we've had the big uh, rate shock, right? That's we're pretty much at the end of that, right? And obviously, as a fixed income investor, the transmission is basically one for one, right? Because the discounted cash flows are no, it's just the, the impact comes through straight away. In equities and other parts of the, the fixed income universe, the sort of higher high yielding, uh, lower quality parts of the fixed income universe, that transmission is not always one for one, right? So, um, but it you know we, we, the discount rate has still gone up, right? And if you've got a stream of equity dividends or a stream of cash flows coming from a, an equity investment, the discount rate is still higher. So the fact that equities have defied uh, gravity to a certain extent, I'll, yeah. I would say they defied gravity because I'm a fixed income investor. But the <laughs> fact that they de- defied gravity um, to me is is something that you know investors should be cautious about, not optimistic. I think that now is not the right time to be saying, well, bond inve- you know bonds have underperformed over the last eighteen months. Therefore, we should be divesting of our bonds and piling into equities because I think you'd just be going out of the frying pan into the fire. Now the question is around, you know, how does ESG labeled bonds, or how does you know ESG fit into that? Well, for me, it's a question of um, of governance, right? So, a good ESG investment investment is a company that has good governance. It's good governance around, obviously, you know, the, the sort of you know defensive uh, minority interests and so on and so forth. But it's also thinking about future risks. It's thinking about the risks inherent in the business from climate change, about the risk inherent from uh, social changes. Um, from geopolitical changes, from cybersecurity, so on and so forth. So um, a management team or a, a government that is not thinking about those long-term risks is not thinking about the resilience of its of its business, of its, of its, of its country. Right? So uh, investing in, in, in strong ESG credits is really just future-proofing um, your, your, your investment. And obviously, as fixed-income investors, that's what we care about. We care about the downside. We care about the impairment of our capital. Right, and if companies aren't thinking about that, they're not thinking in that way, and they're just thinking about the short term, this quarter to the next quarter, then you know that for us is a big warning flag around the viability of their business over the long term. So that's how I see ESG um, fitting in with fixed income and providing a greater degree of resilience to those cash flows and um, uh, and to that security going forward. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, um, Stuart. Final word on ESG bond as a diversifier. Yeah, I mean, I don't disagree with anything Chris said, so I won't sort of recover any of that. I guess two other points, which I think are quite interesting, but very early stage at this point, is there's some evidence that labelled issuance outperforms standard issuance during times of severe stress, albeit it's over a very limited time frame. So I think we need to be very careful using, you know, assuming that's the case, but there is limited evidence of that through the stresses where we've had, had them in in existence. So that could potentially be a, a positive side of it. And then sort of looking forward, looking at the Bank of England, greening their corporate bond purchase scheme. Um, obviously, that, that's now been entirely unwound, but thinking about if you get to a stage where it doesn't feel like we're sort of in that world at the moment, but if you could see corporate bonds being purchased again by the Bank of England, well, there is now the greening criteria they've they've put around that there are certain exclusionary criteria within it. And then within sectors, there'll be t- tilts in terms of how many bonds are purchased from a certain issuer, depending how they're scoring on their on their climate system. So in that scenario, well, better performing issuers on those metrics, theoretically, will receive more of their bonds purchased. So if you sort of follow the theory through, that should mean they should suffer less volatility, right? So that could be a benefit. But clearly, we've not seen that come into practice yet. It's sort of quite a recent development. But I think those two things could be um, potentially beneficial for 
for ESG bonds as a diversifier over and above sort of the standard bond piece. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Great. Well, thank you very much um, to our guests uh, for joining us today and giving us your insight. Uh, it was really fascinating our discussion. And uh, thank you for listening. Please remember to bank your CPD after answering the six questions in the article below. After listening to this podcast, you're able to communicate popular ESG fixed income strategies, explain how bond managers are responding to market turbulence, and highlight how ESG bonds can act as a diversification tool. Thank you. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.